Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Jeff Lagerquist. This is a show about helping businesses navigate the coronavirus pandemic. On today's show, we'll talk about neighborhoods with more independent businesses and how they're weathering COVID-19 better than areas packed with upscale chains. We'll look at some fresh analysis from RBC predicting commercial landlords may have to spend big on office upgrades, and we'll also dig into how troubled businesses can restructure and how more successful ones can buy up distressed assets. To break down all these stories, I'm joined by Mark Satov. He's a business strategy expert and founder of Satov Consultants. He's here to help us find solutions and ideas for businesses dealing with the pandemic. Well, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here today. We have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm looking forward to jumping in. Yeah, I'm the new guy here, so let's get started. Um, well, why don't we begin with something that's rare in our COVID-19 coverage, a good news story for small businesses. A new study from the Canadian Urban Institute and Van City Credit Union is highlighting the importance of local loyalty. Researchers looked at shopping districts across Canada and found clusters of small independent businesses holding up better than areas dominated by high-end chains. Mark, we've heard so, so much about the struggles for small family-owned shops and restaurants. Is that a surprise to you? It's not actually a big surprise to me, and it's a story that I love. I mean, uh, I love that, uh, you know, you said you're the new guy. Your first story gets to be good news, so I think that's great. And I think that uh, it actually goes along with a lot of things that I think about retail. You know, the first one is, despite all the talk, online is not everything. It is not the only way that people like to transact. People actually enjoy the experience of going into a store, of talking to people that they know, uh, touching and feeling product, even if some of the product is stuff that they could buy online. Uh, the other thing that it actually signifies to me is that retail will be back, right? I mean, and when I say retail, I don't mean e-commerce. I mean, brick and mortar retail will be back because people are going into these stores. And so I think there's there, there's good news there. Uh, and I think it, there's good news with the rationale because it does make sense. Now, what percentage of the economy these types of stores make up is a different story and whether they'll continue to make up a percentage, you know, the same percentage in the future. Uh, but I think the point of the story is there is a role for that small business and the small local business. Uh, and, and I think, by the way, there, there are some reasons why these businesses probably have a bit of a better chance of survival, right? Uh, one of them is if you compare a small business that's not on a high street, and let's say they're selling similar good types to one that is on a high street, uh, they actually have lower rent. So just an, an absolute basis. They just have lower rent, and rent is a big percentage of the cost that we've talked about a lot on the show. The other thing, uh, which is in the story, was that many of these businesses are ethnic-owned businesses. And so some of them are in these communities that are ethnic pockets, you know, like in Toronto, near where I live, you have little Portugal and little Italy and little Korea right near where I live. And so there are all these sort of ethnic pockets, which, you know, make living in a city fun. Uh, but they, they have a, the stores there tend to have a bit of a different flavor. And so that's interesting, too. 
Yeah, absolutely. I live on the East Danforth. I'm actually uh, visiting my parents right now in Erin, Ontario, but I can certainly tell you that there are beloved Greek restaurants on that street and people are willing to go to extreme lengths to make sure that they stay afloat. So cultural loyalty is certainly a big thing. Um, I guess we can uh, move on to our next story. Um, We've seen 22 major Canadian companies file for creditor protection in May and June. That's four times the normal pace. These are big names like Reitman's, Frank & Oak, and David's Tea. Yesterday, we got new data from Statistics Canada showing 90,000 businesses closed in April, more than double the month uh, in uh, 2019. I think it's safe to say that there are going to be a lot of companies needing to restructure their operations and plenty of distressed assets going up for sale. Um, Why don't we start with restructuring? How do you know when your business has a structural problem or if it's simply a temporary factor that you can ride out? It's a very interesting question, actually, uh, because one of the things that I've said about some of the more high profile businesses that were failing was that for many of them, the writing had been on the wall for a while. And, you know, like if you look at David C. Frank and Oak, not so much, uh, in my opinion, uh, not as large as some of the other ones. But many of the businesses that we talk about that are failing now, I actually think have been failing, quote unquote, for uh, a long time. But, you know, the old saying, you know, a rising tide floats all boats. Uh, and so what happens is the, certain, the tide is certainly not rising now. Uh, and a lot of boats are starting to, well, not 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 float very high. So I, I think the the I, I think. I think in many cases it is obvious. I think one of the things we'll see is that businesses that are generally healthy uh, will actually have an easier time finding financing during this time. And I don't think we will see them actually restructure quite as frequently because if, uh, if their creditors or even new creditors see this business and they say, well, this is a business that is doing well. They're obviously going through a tough time because of COVID. And they're not so sensitive to not being profitable or not having revenue come in for a few months or as much. This is a business that I am going to back. And so I think what would happen in that case is you would see an announcement of a business that is refinancing. You would not see an announcement of a business that is filing for creditor protection. Now, I have to be careful with that uh, uh, statement. I can't, we can't apply it everywhere because there are healthy cruise lines and healthy cinema operators and healthy hotels that uh, are going to struggle because the, I'll say the intensity of the slowdown is just so great. Uh, And so there, you know, again, you may not have a structural problem with your business, but yet there's a problem with the economy such that your business is irrelevant for a period of time. And depending on what your financial structure was before, uh, it may be just too hard to survive. And so there are a lot of, I said there are a lot of different situations and each one, each one sort of calls for its own treatment. So let's look at the other side of that coin. For businesses that are performing well, there could be opportunities to buy bankrupt competitors or other distressed assets that come up for sale because of the owner's misfortune. Um, what are the opportunities and risks associated with uh, growing your business given the pandemic and the current state of the economy? Right. Well, one of the things I would say, which perhaps you would perceive as you know obvious, is you have to be very careful. So I think that buying a business that uh, is distressed and I'll say, regardless of, of the reason for it being distressed, uh, is not for the faint of heart, right? And you need to have the courage. Remember that you are buying a business that is not making it on its own. And so if you're buying a business that is not making it on its own, there's one thing to say you're going to have to 
write one big check to the trustees if it's already in creditor protection and the and the uh, creditors are agreeing, or to the previous owner if it's in trouble and needs restructuring but not quite over the edge yet. So let's assume for a second that you're going to have to write a check. The challenge is that's not the only check you're going to have to write because the reason that it's in the position it's in is that the current owner was not in the position to keep writing checks to keep that business afloat. And so what you have to be ready for is how many more checks are you going to have to write over the next period of time until COVID ends? And guess what? I have a view of when COVID ends. You may have a view of when COVID ends. I'm not sure that either of us are right because it's going to be hard to know who's right. So I think the first thing is you have to be very careful about modeling out the very worst case scenarios and then saying, okay, I am ready for the worst case scenarios and I've done all the math. I think, you know, the other thing to think about is actually going back to your question, which was a good one on, is this a business that is structurally um, sound, let's say? And I think by structure, you probably meant not just the financial structure, but the brand and the business model and the way, you know, the operations. You have to actually do a fairly thorough evaluation and you have to do it quickly. Uh, and you have to be able to assess, okay, one thing, do I have the cash to maintain this during the period of time where it could be severely distressed? And then do, am I sure that this is a business worth saving? Because there are lots of opportunities. There will not be a shortage of opportunities out there where there'll be distressed assets. The question is, which ones warrant saving? And I have a cynical view that, um, again, I, I said it before, but many of the businesses that are going, I'll say, over the edge, I don't want to say deserve to because nobody deserves misfortune, but I would say we could have predicted that they were going to because they had been struggling for a long time. So I would say, you know, find a way to do your diligence, make sure to really model the cash flow, be conservative. Remember that your business may be healthy and then it may turn unhealthy if COVID lasts longer and then you have two unhealthy businesses. So I guess overall, just be careful, but there will be opportunity. Of course. Let's turn to a different type of structure. All those office buildings that have been sitting empty since the early days of the pandemic. RBC came up with some predictions about what it will take to actually get uh, workers back through the door. They include a lot of costly retrofits, things like larger elevators to encourage social distancing, touchless security, temperature screening stations, and upgraded air circulation. Are landlords in any place right now to spend on these types of things? Okay, so the, this is a, a, a very interesting story, and I have to be careful because I'm going to give you a personal opinion, and I'm not just saying this for the lawyers, but I'm saying this because I believe it's responsible. I'm not an expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. I happen to have a personal opinion that uh, we will find out in a few months that all of this air circulation stuff uh, is not as relevant in terms of people getting uh, catching this uh, the virus that causes COVID. And all the surface stuff that we talk about in terms of how long it lives on surface and all that, I do think as a citizen that we will find out that it's not as relevant. And the reason I say that is if people were getting it from surfaces as much as they were worried, our numbers would be way greater than they are today. Now, again, I, I'm not the person that you should turn to to uh, make your decision about what technology you're putting in because you're going to have to make the decision based on what the experts are saying. And the experts are saying that HVAC is a factor and that clean surfaces are a factor. I think, unfortunately, even if HVAC is a factor, I think to your point, you alluded to this, we, we don't have the money, the real estate uh, developers, the people who own the buildings, uh, and even the large tenants, if they take uh, responsibility for retrofits, they don't have that kind of capital, especially now. And I don't think it's 
responsible to imagine that they are going to put in that type of capital if the period during which is, it is relevant is only going to be for the next, again, going back to you know a year and a half, two and a half, whatever it is, it's not going to be for the next 10 years. And when you make a major razor fit to a building, it has to be for, I mean, five years as a minimum and then, and then 10 years at least. And so I just, I just don't think that the big expense ones are realistic. And again, I, I personally, I don't think they're necessary, which may be neither here nor there. However, on the other side, I think that a lot of the small ones are not only necessary, but they're easy. So, you know, I've been going into my building sporadically because I'm the only one. And so I could be very socially distant uh, from my colleagues who are not there. And my building, while it's downtown, is actually quite far away from the core. Uh, we're, we're, on, we're on the west end of the core. And so our building is empty. We only have 12 floors. And very early on, you know, they did wayfinding. So by that, I mean, you know, walk here, walk on this side in the elevators, stand here. We only want four people, this corner, this corner, uh, hand washing stations, uh, signs, please come in this door and exit that door. And my, from speaking to people, and we've done a study on this, uh, every business that remained open jumped and did that stuff early on because it was easy and it was low cost. And most of the business owners who stayed open have felt that it's actually been adequate to prevent the spread of infection. So that's just that's just the data points uh, that I have, I guess. So, Mark, I've got to circle back to something that you said. If uh, if people aren't getting it from surfaces and then you're um, less worried about air, um, wh where are the infections coming from? Because we're certainly not um, totally through this whole pandemic. I, again, personal opinion they're getting it from people who are not socially distancing. They're getting it from people who are standing close to each other and not wearing a mask. And I, it's, I, in my opinion, it's getting a lot better now, but you go out into public places. Uh, certainly a few weeks ago, as I say less now, people are standing a lot closer to each other than they were supposed to. You know, uh, my wife and I have been relatively conservative since the beginning, but we have friends who are not. They've been spending time with other friends, going inside people's homes. We've not really done that. I actually think, the spread is from people not observing the social distancing. And also the numbers suggest that the spread is uh, now uh, in, in Ontario uh, and maybe, maybe similar in other provinces. It's actually clusters. What we're actually seeing today is that there are clusters. So you go to the migrant farm, farm workers in Windsor and Essex and you find, and obviously they're only in stage two, because that is a cluster where a bunch of people who were living in dormitory style living and working very close together during the day were catching it from each other. And so, you know, it's a terrible situation for them. But in Toronto, we have 10 or 15 new cases a day, 10 or 15 new cases across a vast city and, you know, four and a half million people. So um, again, it is just my opinion. Uh, but I think that if we, if we do a very good job of social distancing, you know, in my office, uh, we already have a plan. We're going to have half of our staff come in uh, one week and half the next week. We also have a plexi, which I didn't mention around the around our cubicles, so people are just a bit more distance when they are there. Uh, only one person allowed in the kitchen at a time. We have a small office, so you know if we observe those things and wash our hands, I actually think we'll be okay. And if we're not, I mean, we'll find out and we'll adjust course. There's so many moving parts here, Mark, but I'm afraid we've got to move on to the fix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So uh, more than half of Canadians say they're afraid to go back to their workplaces, I guess, uh, building on what we were just talking about. And 70% are worried about their colleagues showing up infected with COVID-19. That's according to new research from KPMG. Um, At the same time, uh, Statistics Canada said in April, nearly 7 million Canadians were working from home. That's that's almost 40% of the Canadian workforce. Um, We've seen some major employers, including Canadian banks and tech companies like Shopify, tell their staff to stay at home until the end of the year. Um, What should businesses be doing, aside from maybe the, the retrofits, to get ready for the return of workers? Okay, so I want to I, I, I want to actually finish on the retrofits, not because I want to steal time you didn't give me, but because it's actually it's very relevant here. I think they should do the small retrofits because they can do them in their office. And I don't think businesses can do the large retrofits. Again, before we were talking about the real estate developers and the property owners, remember that uh, you know, HVAC, I mean, if you're, if you're a factory, obviously you, you own or uh, rent the building in a way that the retrofits are your responsibility. But in my building, I'm in an office, I don't have the option of doing HVAC. And so what we are focusing on is all the stuff that we could do in our office, right? And we are being very diligent. We're being very transparent. In other words, we're showing our staff that we are going through the deep thought of all the different scenarios. And we're making sure that they know that we've thought through uh, the typical day of an employee and our workspace and our workflow and every company's will be a little bit different. We're actually thinking about what would be necessary to make it safe uh, in our office. So think about the workflow, do whatever you can in your own office. And then I think I think at a certain point, you have to be able to say to your employees, listen, we understand that some of you are unsure. We may make accommodation in certain situations but we have decided this is our policy and this is this the policy is going to generally speaking apply to everybody and here is where large businesses in a way are at a disadvantage because if you have a large corporation and you sort of say well it's going to be decided on a case by case basis uh, it's very hard because then you have people say well why was he allowed to stay home and I'm not and why does he get to stay at home 3 days a week and I only get to stay at home every second week you know, so I think I, I think you can make different decisions, but you need to make them transparent and you need to show that there's a rationale so that if you're on the more aggressive end and you say, listen, we are actually requiring everybody to come in. And I think that would be because they uh, that company has deemed that, you know, the people that they're talking about uh, actually need to be at work because, first of all, they do a physical job or collaboration is so important uh, or the workflow is such that they have to be together. So there's how needed is it to be together and how safe is it, right? And so if you work in a meat plant, it is needed, but you know there are lots of safety uh, issues. If you work in a call center, uh, it's often needed because they may not have the work from home sort of virtual call center technology. Uh, and it's a little safer because you could put people in cubicles and you could probably rent a little extra space and have people sit in every second cubicle and you could 
do things like uh, think about shifting and when people come in, you could control ingress and egress. There's a lot you can do, but at a certain point, I believe that businesses have to say, we've done what we can do. And now we are requiring you to actually conform to the policy. And it won't be okay for somebody to say, you just don't feel safe because we're saying that we've done what we could do. Well, I mean, of course, there are, there is a lot of fear out there. And, you know, you can talk about the mechanics and the logistics of making things safe and uh, while while keeping your uh, operation up and running. But what, what do you say to a worker who says, I have genuine fear about setting foot through that door? I would say it, it I would want to understand where the fear comes from. And I would say, OK, are you fearful because you are in a higher risk category or you live with somebody who's in a higher risk category? And if I hear that from enough of my staff, then uh, as a, at a policy level, we would have to sit down, you know, my company's small, we have a small management team, et cetera, but in a large company, you sit down with HR, you say, okay, X percent of our population is in high risk. What do we want to do for those? And the, the story is, unfortunately, like, again, personal opinion, I believe that we are at a time in society where we will not be able to eliminate risk. I believe that we are at a time where we have to accept that over the next couple of years, we are all at a greater risk of getting sick. And unfortunately, a very small percentage are even at a, at a risk of fatality. And I think that I think that we're doing everything we can to reduce that. But I don't think we as a society and as companies could say our job is to eliminate risk. Our job is to manage the risk down. And so I would say you could decide to make accommodations for certain groups. You could decide as a company listen, it's up to you all. And whoever wants to come could come and whoever doesn't want to come doesn't have to. I, I think we need to remember that, you know, you and I work in the knowledge economy, right? And so it's easy for us to say, we should work at home and everybody should let their people work from home. But if you run a store or a manufacturing plant or somewhere where you need to service people face-to-face uh, -face, or like I say, a call center where they don't have a virtual call center implemented, I mean, just one example, it's not really an option. And so at a certain point, the business has to survive because if you the business doesn't survive, a lot more jobs are at stake. Very true. Let's shift to our final story. Cloax recently said that grocery store shelves won't be fully stocked with their disinfecting wipes until 2021. And that's, of course, due to a demand surge due to COVID-19. We've seen a ton of items face supply shortages and supply chain disruptions. What can businesses do to smooth out these issues? Well, it's, it, it's a deep topic and it goes into, uh, you know, the depth of operations, which is an area I enjoy. So um, I would say, you know, a starting point I, I, I would put out there for businesses that are not meeting the demand, you don't have to, right? And so you sort of have this thing where like, you know, I sell a product and everybody wants this product and I have 80 in stock uh, and uh, there's demand for 100. Uh, I would say that's an amazing problem to have. And of course, there are times where you actually want to be very careful because if somebody else jumps to meet that demand, then with the risk of not meeting it yourself is not just the opportunity cost of the lost profit, but you could have share loss in the future. So in other words, if uh, Clorox uh, is going to be out of wipes until 2021, and Lysol says, you know what, I have actually decided to ramp up my production 
And I now create loyal customers by creating a product that they had never tried and they're going to try. There is some risk in the future that Clorox, uh, when everything comes back to normal, is not going to get those customers back. So there are some reasons where I would say you have to meet demand, but I would say in general, you don't have to meet demand. You could decide this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. We are going to produce at 100% of our capacity, but not at 120% of our capacity. And we're gonna ride, we're gonna ride it and we're going to enjoy the fact uh, that we have no stress because often businesses have the opposite type of stress, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's an instinct, right? And you know, I have a business uh, that is a service business, but it's a similar, similar discussion. Our business is designed uh, it's professional services. It's designed to be low utilization and high margin. That's just the way it's meant to be so that we don't have to be full to be uh, profitable. But there are times when, you know, the phone's ringing off the hook and we have demand. And I can tell you my instinct is I want to take every project. But there are times where you just have to say no and you should just revel in that fact. So I guess one way to meet demand is uh, through expansion, but uh, also you could look at forging partnerships. Are there risks associated with that? Um, I mean, of course they are. there are, but uh, what does that look like? And uh, I, I don't know, could you wind up with a more efficient business going forward as a result of uh, forging some of those ties during a time like this? For sure. Necessity is the motherhood of invention, and it may be a time to think about outsourcing more. And depending on what type of business you're in, you may be able to outsource some of your production. If you think about what the pharmaceutical companies are doing, they are licensing. So what they are actually doing is they're saying, we own a brand, we own a formula. And for Clorox wipes, it actually would be a similar thing. They have a patented technology in terms of how the the uh, fabric is woven. Uh, I'm sort of making that up, but I, I'm pretty sure it's true. Uh, and they have a formula for the chemical compound that is applied. Uh, they may even have a process for how it's applied. I would be, I'd be more surprised about that, but it's possible. They could make the decision, in the case of Clorox, they could make the decision to say, okay, we are authorizing uh, 20 small chemical factories to actually produce this and sell it to our supply chain, or they'll just produce it and we'll still distribute it through our channels. Uh, and guess what? Those small companies are going to get a boon in demand themselves for the next couple of years or next year. Uh, and then when it's done, I'm sorry, uh, you know, you're done. And, you know, that's just all you can do. And then, and as we see with all the vaccines that are coming out, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are doing just that. What they're doing, they're saying, listen, there's a need here. There's a societal need. You know, we could produce 10 million doses, but, you know, the world's going to need a billion. Well, we're going to let this company uh, produce uh, 300 million and this company produce 300 million and we're going to get a royalty. So there are a lot of things you could do you just have to be careful about the term of the deal that you're signing. And you have to be careful to make sure, to your point, that you're not taking on risk. So if we think about partnerships that are linked to outsourcing, um, there comes a different type of risk with outsourcing because Clorox, I don't know, I've not worked for Clorox ever. I don't know what their supply chain is like, but maybe all of their manufacturing today is in-house, right? Uh, and maybe they're not used to outsourcing. Well, to actually create a department, and I have worked in the chemical business, so I know that, to create a department that actually qualifies new factories to produce your goods, uh, actually it's huge risk. And if you think about that there are requirements for their goods uh, from a sanitary and a health standpoint, you actually have to go out and qualify that this uh, new factory is able to produce to the standards uh, and that they're gonna actually mix your chemical compound right and apply it right. And there's a risk 
that somebody buys your product with your brand on the shelf that somebody else made. And I mean, a terrible situation, you know, there could be a health risk, but even if there's not a health risk, what if the quality is not the same, right? What if uh, they think it doesn't work? And if you think about cleaning products, a lot of it is what if it doesn't smell the same? And so it, you, it's easy to just say, well, go outsource your production. Uh, but with something like with something like chemicals, like I say, which I happen to know about, it's not like in two weeks, you're going to get a new factory up and running and they're going to do it. If you have a graphic design company or if you have, uh, you know, an advertising agency, I mean, they're used to always outsourcing overflow demand. You know, they'll get a new account and they'll find that they need 10 new copywriters and 10 new graphic designers. And they'll say, OK, we need you. We're going to pay X per hour, you know, bring your laptop or we'll give you a laptop and, and let's go. And so it's not always easy. One of the things I like companies to think about, especially if they're manufacturing, right? If they're manufacturing hard goods is think about simplifying your product line. And again, I, I did not study Clorox's product line in detail, but it's possible that they have four different sizes of tubs that the wipes come in. And they may even have two or three, they may have unscented and scented, uh, and they may have, you know, this wipe technology and that wipe technology. One of the things, depending on where the shortage is coming from, if the shortage is coming from the fabric that they buy, well, it could be that it's not, it's out of their hands and there's only so much of that fabric that they have contracted to from suppliers. If it actually comes from the time on their production lines, what they may consider is actually simplifying the product line and telling Loblaws and Walmart, I'm sorry, we're only going to produce this one SKU and not the four SKUs. And what happens is their capacity goes up by a lot because they don't have to change over the lines and it's more, it's just more easy to manage. And that pays dividends in the long term because you then have the choice of not actually bringing back the wide skew breadth in the future. Uh, and that's always more profitable. So it's the type of thing where you may have an excuse, whereas normally if you go to Loblaws and say, I'm cutting one of my skews to be more profitable, Loblaws says, forget it. But if you say, listen, I can't produce, but I can produce this, it may pay benefits. Yeah, you could absolutely build in some efficiencies there. So I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. If you want to rewatch this episode or get more news about the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic, please visit the Yahoo Finance Canada website. We've also launched a crisis management podcast, so be sure to check that out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for Mark or feedback on what you saw on the show today, maybe you're going to insist that Alicia get back here as soon as possible, you can reach out to me. I'll pass it along to Alicia, Mark, and uh, my bosses. I'm at uh, Jeff, J-E-F-F dot Lagerquist, L-A-G-E-R-Q-U-I-S-T at yahoofinance.com. Thanks for tuning in. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.